Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Last week we learned that the sixfold sphere is the Buddha's epistemic account of naive contact. Naive contact is the presumption of me and objects and relations between me and objects for benefit or for harm. For the Buddha, the interesting question is how we come to that view of things. I described the sixfold sphere as impersonal in contrast to naive contact. Naive contact presumes a self and another, a subject and an object, and makes little sense without the two standing across from each other. In the sixfold sphere, there is an object, that of cognizance, but no necessary subject. Instead, sense data, along with an impersonal cognitive process, the I, produce cognizance of an object. The value of this analysis, when fully understood and internalized, is to forestall the arising of the self that otherwise leads to naive contact, to feeling, to craving, and to elaboration into a personality through appropriation and becoming. To fully understand and internalize the sixfold sphere is to see clearly the arising of the sixfold sphere, and this leads to liberation. When a bhikkhu is thus perfectly liberated in mind, even if powerful appearances cognizable by the eye come into range of the eye, they do not obsess his mind. His mind is not at all affected. It remains steady, attained to imperturbability, and he observes its vanishing. This is repeated as for eye and appearances, so for ear and sounds, nose and odors, tongue and taste, body and tangibles, and mind and phenomena. If one is intent on renunciation and solitude of mind, if one is intent on non-affliction and the destruction of appropriation, if one is intent on cravings, destruction, and non-confusion of mind, when one sees the sense spheres arising, one's mind is completely liberated. The problem is that without full comprehension of the sixfold sphere in the epistemic sense, we nonetheless find a way to presume a self. In particular, the eye, ear, etc., is easily identified with the self. The I is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. As for I, so for ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind. For this reason, the Buddha is intent on rooting out this tendency to presume that there is a self lurking within the sixfold sphere. 
Bhikkhus, I will teach you the way that is suitable for uprooting all presumptions. Listen to that. And what, Bhikkhus, is the way that is suitable for uprooting all presumptions? What do you think, Bhikkhus? Is the I permanent or impermanent? Impermanent, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent suffering or happiness? Suffering, venerable sir. Is what is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change fit to be regarded thus? This is mine, this I am, this is myself. No, venerable sir. Are appearances permanent or impermanent? Eye cognizance, eye contact, any feeling that arises with eye contact? As for eye and appearance in all of the preceding, so for ear and sound, nose and odor, and so on. Seeing thus, Bhikkhus, the instructed noble disciple experiences disillusionment toward the eye, eye cognizance, eye contact, whatever feeling arises with eye contact, he experiences revulsion towards the ear as for, as for eye, and so on. Experiencing disillusionment, he becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, he is liberated. When liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. He understands destroyed his birth. The holy life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more for this state of being. This, bhikkhus, is the way that is suitable for uprooting all presumptions. Eye and appearance are impermanent because they are momentary cognitive events, rising and ceasing, then rising and ceasing anew, each time with new content, and in the case of eye, with new context and conditioning dispositions. Furthermore, eye cognizance, contact feeling, craving, and the rest are likewise impermanent because they depend on what is impermanent namely eye and appearances. Independence on the eye and visible appearances, there arises eye cognizance. The eye is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Visible appearances are impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Thus, this dyad is moving and tottering, impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Eye cognizance is impermanent, changing, becoming otherwise. Moreover, in the Buddha's teaching, what is impermanent, subject to change, cannot be a self. If someone says, the eye is self, that is not tenable. The rise and fall of the eye are discerned, and since its rise and fall are discerned, it would follow, myself rises and falls. That is why it is not tenable for anyone to say, the I is self. Thus, the I is not self. As a result, the entire world is empty of a self. It is Ananda. Because it is empty of a self and of what belongs to a self that it said, empty is the world. And what is empty of self and what belongs to the self. The I, Ananda, is empty of self and what belongs to the self. Appearances are empty of self and what belongs to self. I, cognizance, is empty of self and what belongs to self. I, contact, is empty of self 
and what belongs to self, and so on for ear and mind and so on. There is nowhere the self can hide. This is the realization of the noble ones who see the arising of the sixfold sphere. But most of us do not share this realization and will continue to be a self entangled in becoming. Now, bhikkhus, this is the way leading to the origination of personality. One regards the I thus. This is mine. This I am. This is myself. One regards appearances thus. One regards I cognizance thus. One regards I contact thus. One regards feeling thus. One regards craving thus. This is mine. This I am. This is myself. Passion for the I. The presumption of a self within the misunderstood sixfold sphere turns sense contact into naive contact and has predictable consequences that flow downstream through contact, feeling, craving, and so on. The following passage takes us all the way through becoming, rebirth, and this mass of suffering. Bhikkhus, when one does not know and see the I as it actually is, when one does not know and see visible appearances as they actually are, when one does not know and see I cognizance as it actually is, when one does not know and see I contact as it actually is, when one does not know and see as it actually is what is felt as pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant that arises with eye contact as condition, then one is inflamed by lust for the eye, for appearances, for eye cognizance, for eye contact, for what is felt as pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant that arises with eye contact as condition. When one abides inflamed by lust, fettered, infatuated, contemplating gratification, then the five aggregates affected by clinging are built up for oneself in the future, and one's craving, which brings renewal of being, is accompanied by delight and lust, and delights in this and that increases. One's bodily and mental troubles increase. One's bodily and mental torments increase. One's bodily and mental fevers increase. And one experiences bodily and mental suffering. This is repeated as for eye and appearance, so for ear and sound, nose and odor, tongue and taste, body and tangible, and mind and phenomena. Sometimes the language that traces suffering specifically back to the misperceived sixfold sphere is quite startling. The following famous passage projects the metaphor of fire, generally used in reference to becoming, back to its origins in the sixfold sphere, here again referred to as the all. Bhikkhus, all is burning. And what bhikkhus is the all that is burning? The eye is burning, appearances are burning, eye cognizance is burning, eye contact is burning, and whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether pleasant or painful or neither painful nor pleasant, that too is burning. 
Burning with what? Burning with the fire of lust, with the fire of hatred, with the fire of delusion, burning with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, lamentation, pain, displeasure, and despair, I say. We're cautioned that an appearance entering the eye can be a seductive and dangerous thing. There are bhikkhus appearances cognizable by the eye that are desirable, lovely, agreeable, pleasing, sensually enticing, tantalizing. If a bhikkhu seeks delight in them, welcomes them, and remains holding to them, he is called a bhikkhu who has swallowed Mara's hook. He has met with calamity and disaster, and the evil one can do with him as he wishes. Appearances are hazards through which we must navigate. The eye bhikkhus is the ocean for a person. Its current consists of appearances. One who withstands that current consisting of appearances is said to have crossed the ocean of the eye with its waves, whirlpools, sharks, and demons. This is repeated as for the eye and appearances and so on. A primary theme of many of such passages is that if we can control in the present moment what arises in the eye and appearances, then we can control the immediate downstream consequences. So too, bhikkhus, in regard to appearances cognizable by the eye, even trifling appearances that enter into range of the eye obsess the mind, not to speak of those that are prominent. For what reason? Because lust still exists and has not been abandoned. Hatred still exists and has not been abandoned. Delusion still exists and has not been abandoned. As for eye and appearances for the rest. In the end, such consequences extend a future rebirth. It would be better, bhikkhus, for the eye faculty to be lacerated by a red-hot iron pin burning, blazing, and glowing than for one to grasp the sign through the features in an appearance cognizable by the eye. For if cognizance should stand tied to gratification in the sign or in the features, and if one should die on that occasion, it is possible that one will go to one of two dimensions, hell or the animal realm. Having seen this danger, I speak thus. As for I in appearances, so for the rest. The cessation of the sixfold sphere. The I in appearance are the initiator of the playing out of the rest of the human pathology. The sixfold sphere defines a narrow locus from which our practice will have great consequences downstream. The Buddha tells us on seeing an appearance with the eye. Do not crave any theme or details by which, if you were to dwell without restraint over the faculty of the eye, evil, unskillful qualities such as greed or distress might assail you. Practice for its restraint. Guard the faculty of the eye. Secure your restraint with regard to the faculty of the eye. As for eye and appearance, so for ear and sound and so on. If we control where we place our attention, we control what plays out. 
Our practice at this level is called faculty restraint or guarding of the faculties, whereby we avoid the sensual contacts that go on to give rise to our passions. Aside from reducing samsaric suffering, restraint of the senses is an important basis for meditation practice. Sense restraint is implemented physically or as a matter of attitude. Physically, we can always avert the eye where passions might arise or avoid placing ourselves in a context where passions might arise. Monks commonly avoid association with women and nuns with men as matters of practice. In meditation retreats, social interactions and eye contact are generally discouraged Lighting is dim and participants are segregated by gender as a means of implementing sense restraint. Various tricks can modify our attitude toward what does fall under the gaze of the eye. In order to moderate lust for women, the Buddha recommends that the monks regard women old enough to be their mother as their mother, women old enough to be their sister as their sister, and women old enough to be their daughter as their daughter. In order to moderate lust for food, they should recall, this food is not for the sake of amusement, but to sustain health of the body for the sake of practice. A paragraph that we recite in Pali before each meal at the monastery at which I live. We might also develop enough discipline that we simply do not pursue themes and details of visible appearances. Specific contemplative practices can help develop this discipline. For instance, contemplation of loathsomeness, asubha, or contemplation of our own body parts, kidney, heart, liver, pleura, spleen, or corpses, all of which fall under observation of body, kayanupasana, the first satipatthana. These tend to decondition our dispositions toward lust. As with other links in the chain, contemplating the dangers of the sixfold sphere is an effective way to let go of its grip. Before his awakening, the Buddha asked himself, What is the allure? What is the danger? What is the escape in the case of the eye? Then, bhikkhus, it occurred to me, the pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on the eye, this is the allure in the eye, that the eye is impermanent, suffering, and subject to change, this is the danger in the eye. The removal and abandonment of desire and lust for the eye, this is the escape from the eye, as for the eye, so for ear, nose, and so on. So long, bhikkhus, as I did not directly know, as they really are the allure, the danger, and the escape in the case of these six internal spheres, I did not claim to have awakened. If one does not understand these, one is far from the Dhamma and Vinaya. The I must be understood because Without directly knowing and fully understanding the eye, without developing dispassion for it and abandoning it, one is incapable of destroying suffering. We've discussed the allure and danger of the eye in the course of this talk. Specifically, 
The key danger of the sixfold sphere is that it is a producer of objects of cognizance, full-blown with the usual presumptions of self-existence and substantiality. Aside from creating growth and becoming, such objects tend to be alluring and lead to feeling, craving, and appropriation. The primary way to limit this process, or finally to bring about the cessation of the sixfold sphere, is to recognize how the sixfold sphere produces our outer world, to gain insight into the outer world's subjective constructedness and its insubstantiality. We've demonstrated this constructedness in association with the sixfold sphere primarily by pointing to the dependence of cognizance of outer objects on the subjective sense faculties. The demonstration of such constructiveness began with regard to the aggregates by pointing to the dependence of the entire phenomenal world on subjective modes of awareness. As we make our way further upstream, we will continue to demonstrate the constructedness of our world.